And welcome back to Civil Action. This is Brian Kabatak along with Sean Karnikian. We come at you, try to do it every single week, go over some important cases that affect plaintiffs in their practice, in their law practice, that come out of the California Court of Appeal, California Supreme Court, Ninth Circuit. Occasionally, the United States Supreme Court, where it's not a great place to be if you're a plaintiff's lawyer these days, try to review important issues that are out there with respect to your practice, and hopefully in somewhere between 20 and 30 minutes, give you a little bit of information about it. I think today we got about five or six cases we're covering, right? We do, Brian. First, we have a California Supreme Court opinion that we're going to cover that arises out of the breach of a confidentiality clause in a settlement agreement and kind of a worst-case scenario for plaintiff's lawyers. So that'll be a yeah, cautionary Yeah, that's a cautionary tale. tale. Yeah, and then we're going to talk about the J&J talc cases in also not a great case. A good result start. went terribly wrong on appeal. Not necessarily anyone's fault, just a bad, bad result for the plaintiff's bar in general. Then we're going to talk about a PI case and how to perfect your appeal. Or, also you not know, a great case. With bad, bar. bad case. It is bad plaintiff's cases. Uh, then we're going to talk about a rogue juror. This one wasn't that bad. Well, uh, bad for the plaintiff in the trial court. That's true. Um, but then the court of appeal came in and fixed it, so uh, that's an interesting case. Then we're going to talk in a, uh, talk about an abuse case, and uh, this one has a bad result too. Someone that got abused and really doesn't have any recourse here, given how the uh, law comes down on this. And then lastly, we're going to talk about an insurance case and interpreting insurance contracts and inferring or giving meaning to words in a contract. In that's general. what we got for today. That's what we oh, got for today. Okay. Just bad news all around. Uh, not necessarily bad news, but good good lessons. Plus, so, our listeners have to listen to us, so it's just, it's just all bad. Which reminds me, Sean, tell them how they can get a hold of us. Uh, you can find us online at kbklawyers.com or on social media at Cabotech LLP. We'd love to hear your feedback. We have been hearing some feedback, and we're listening. I heard, Brian, that people don't like you, but but you know, it's okay. I think I don't that's care just limited to people you. in the office. Yeah, or, or the people in this in room. In our law firm. Yeah, or okay. people in this room. Yeah. I like me. All right. Let's start today first with the Monster Energy versus um, Bruce Schechter. This is a case that came down from the California Supreme Court. uh, And what this really involves are all of those settlement agreements that every single one of us have signed at one time or another where at the very end of the settlement agreement, we're not signing on as parties to the agreement usually, but we do sign that we approve as to form and content as the lawyer. Okay. And in this case, what happened was uh, the lawyers the lawyers signed on that they approved as a form and content. There was a confidentiality clause, and the allegation is that the plaintiff lawyer afterwards breached the confidentiality clause. And I think it's important to note how specific this confidentiality clause was. It went into it went out of its out of its way, and it spe- specifically mentioned that plaintiff and their counsel of record won't talk to or won't disclose the details of the settlement to, um, now I'll read off the list, entity, including but not limited to newspapers, magazines, television, flyers, documentaries, brochures, lawyers and settlements, which is a specific publication, and verdict search, which is another publication, billboards, radio, newsletter, internet. It was very specific. It was very specific. Comprehensive. And then the allegations are that the lawyers went out and talked to somebody and distributed information and said that there was, quote, substantial dollars for family in Monster Energy Drink wrongful death suit. In Uh, reference to this case. Right. Even though this lawyer had handled other cases. And uh, Monster Energy sues the lawyer, and the lawyer files an anti-slap motion. 
anti-slap is designed to protect someone whose uh, speech is being precluded or speech is being silenced or chilled, and that's what it's meant for. And uh, the lawyer lost on the uh, anti-slap motion in the trial court, right, Brian? Yeah, they 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 the case made its way to the California Supreme Court on the following question. If you sign the agreement as to approving as to form and content, can you ever be sued? Can you ever be sued? So what the court really focused on here, the California Supreme Court focused on here, was the fact that the language in the agreement was very specific. Plaintiffs and their counsel agree to be bound by the confidentiality. And what the court said, and I, I really think this is important because – we have to be careful about this. Um, everybody at one time or another that's entered into these kind of agreements gets some sort of a threat. You talk to somebody. You spoke to somebody. So the first thing is, let's just agree, confidentiality kind of sucks. Yeah. And unfortunately, you're put in a position where they're offering your clients a substantial sum of money. And as a result of that, your clients want to sign it, and they want to sign the confidentiality clause. And then they try to bind you by the confidentiality clause. So can we push back on that? Yes, push back on that. Say, I'm not going to be bound by that. The client wants it, but if the client ultimately tells you you're their lawyer, you have to do it. You don't have a choice. And here, at least, the Supreme Court was very clear. This isn't a blanket rule. It's going to turn on whether or not the language specifically includes the, the lawyer and whether there's specific language that pertains to the lawyer and the lawyer then signs the agreement that they're bound by it. And here throughout the agreement, a lot of the paragraphs, a lot of the, the entire confidentiality section mentioned the attorneys, the, uh, the plaintiff's attorneys, plaintiff's right. counsel, plaintiff's agents, and the attorneys are their agents. So it went out of its way to specify that. So again, it's not a blanket rule. Yeah, the court said but you gotta be made, careful. they made numerous references to the lawyer and, of course, you've got a defendant who's probably paid a lot of money. They're not happy, and they're looking for to get even. And part of the money they paid, in their mind, at least, it's, it's consideration for keeping this under wraps and keeping it quiet. I find it really ironic that this is their, this is their big thing. This is their battle. And now there's a published Supreme Court opinion published about Supreme Monster Court Energy opinion. Drink paying substantial right. money to settle a wrongful death case. I guess that goes in the category of be careful of what you wish for, Sean, because yeah. they, they got – and all they got out of this – was that they overcame an anti-slap motion, and now I guess there would be a, a, a trial, or it would go back to the superior court to determine whether or not there's even any liability for this, and whether. Or not I mean, I, I guess what they what they also got out of it is a bigger picture, just a threat, an actual stick to use as as opposed to a carrot when it comes to enforcing confidentiality. So, all right, cautionary tale. So, you know, at the end of the day, not a great case from the plaintiff's bar. Nope. Not a, something we have to be careful of. An important case for all of us to read. Relatively short opinion. Take a look at it, but you, I got the takeaway. The next case is um, absolutely less than happy. It's one of these talcum powder cases involving Johnson & Johnson. And uh, before the show today, we were talking about this, and we were talking about what we wanted to say because it's a comprehensive opinion about the facts and the trial and post-trial um, lengthy, lengthy opinion. I think the original version of it is 66 pages, which is a lot. That made you know, uh, it's a lot to go through, but it, it's a worthwhile read. It's a well-written opinion. Sad outcome. Incredible result achieved by the uh, trial counsel. Yeah, in let's, this, in let's the trial so, court case. So let's go over that. They get a giant verdict against two entities. One is Johnson and Johnson the big Johnson & Johnson company. And the other is a company, a wholly owned subsidiary called Johnson & Johnson Consumer Inc. 
And what was the verdict for? Uh, the verdict was for $68 million against Johnson & Johnson um, and $2 million against JJCI, the Johnson Johnson Consumer, Inc. And Plus then, punitive damages. $340 million against Johnson & Johnson and $7 million against JJCI. So good result. Yeah, great result. And yeah. And then what happened is the trial court took it all away, right? It did. So here's the part about JNOV. Here, here's what ultimately the California Court of Appeal held: is they said, absolutely no liability as a matter of law for Johnson and Johnson, the parent company, the big company, because what they said is that uh, Johnson and Johnson was only manufacturing this product from. This is what I think they said. From like is the late 1800s. Like right? the late 1800s to 1967 is the date. 1967. Yeah. They started producing it. And, they, and then in 1967, this other company, um, strangely also called Johnson & Johnson, but this one is Johnson Johnson Consumer Inc. comes along and starts manufacturing it. So right here, let's just stop and talk about the absurdity of this, is that Johnson & Johnson, the parent corporation – they're saying has no liability because they shaved off this entity and they set up a wholly owned subsidiary. Right. They spun something off and they started using that one to manufacture this product, which by the time they started doing that, they knew or at least were on notice of there being issues. Yeah, they focused on what, when they knew what they knew, what, what exactly it was that their knowledge was. And I recognize that this case isn't probably going to have much applicability to most people listening to us unless they're intel cases, then they're intimately familiar with this decision. And I'm not sure that there's a whole lot here that applies to um, our sort of everyday practice of the law, other than what I just found about this decision absurd was focusing on this, this separate entity that was set up for consumer products by Johnson & Johnson in 1967, and then assuming that they're able to prove to the jury that they knew as a matter of law that the product was dangerous and they kept selling it, what that means, what ultimately they're going to go with with that. All all that's interesting, I guess. Yeah, I think the lesson here is for practical everyday, and correct me if I'm wrong, and now hindsight's 2020, we're being Monday morning quarterbacks, which is probably what we do best here. But maybe the way to have approached this was to look for alter ego liability against Johnson and Johnson for JJCI's actions. And look, and this is probably stuff that the uh, the trial counsel tried to do, and, and I'm sure they put a really valiant effort and put a ton of resources into this case. And and we're probably talking about things that they already considered doing or they already did and weren't able to do. But hey. Alter ego liability is one of the things. Just because you have a defendant that says, hey, we have nothing to do with this, even though we're the ones that have all the money, that are taking all the money from the subsidiary, the wholly owned subsidiary that they milk dry every month, that doesn't mean you can't go after the parent. And you should make an effort to find you know, either under CCP Section 187 or just regular alter ego liability. Allege it in your complaint. Do the discovery on it, and you can, you can fight that. And we're not trying to money back Monday morning quarterback the lawyers who tried the case, the lawyers that dealt with the appeal. No, awesome result. I mean, it's just unfortunate but what happened on appeal. The the whole thing, and then ultimately to add insult to injury, they took away the punitive damages as a matter of law against Johnson Johnson Consumer Products and granted the motion for new trial or sustained the grant of the new trial. So now they're going back for a new trial on anything but punitive, so just compensatory for um, the the victim who is now dead. So 
congratulations, Johnson & Johnson. Best wishes from Sean and Brian on your future success. We hope you make it as a corporation. Let's talk about Hernandez versus First Student, Inc. Let's start with the facts of this case, which are particularly appalling. It's the death of a young man. I think he was 13 years old at the time. He was on a bicycle, and he was hit by a school bus while he was in Glendale and died. So nothing funny about that. Um, There was conflicting evidence about who was responsible, but there was also evidence that as soon as they stopped the bus driver, um, the police recognized that the, poli- the, the bus driver looked to be impaired. Um, they went to the emergency room. They took a blood sample, and the bus driver tested positive for... Benzodiazepines, um, tramadol, al- alprazolam, oxazepam, and tamaz- a-, a bunch of... But then, um, they went, but then they went and searched, so executed a search warrant on her place of residence... And they found more drugs, prescription drugs, some of which I believe she was prescribed, some of which I believe she wasn't prescribed. And she wasn't taking them per prescription. Uh, she would drive in the morning at 830. Then she'd go home and nap before returning around noon. Um, and she had a history of um, sobriety issues. And you know, ultimately, the, the police concluded that she was impaired by her medications. No question there. You know, similarly, the decedent's parents had both um, drug abuse problems, a little relationship with the child. I mean, this is just a completely sad case, which resulted in a jury award of $250,000 in damages, which was adjusted downwards for comparative. And I think the comparative was found to be um, fairly high. But if that isn't bad enough, what you then get into is the appellate court, who I think published this entire decision, because the failure of the lawyers to adequately make a record. Yeah, and it's a lengthy decision, 28 pages. Not good. There's issues with evidence that the court was unable to consider, items in the record, testimony, and rulings that the court was unable to consider. Because for one, for starters, in some instances, there weren't even citations to the record uh, when there was the argument being made by the appellate counsel. If it's not in the record, the court of appeal can't consider it. It's not coming in. Can't consider it. What what I've, you know, I've probably argued over 50 appeals, and I don't consider myself an appellate specialist, but you've got to put stuff in the record. So for example, Appellants have forfeited their claim that the trial court erred in not allowing them to call the bus driver in their case in chief, and the court then says, quote, appellants do not provide a single citation on the record or legal authority to support their claims. They have forfeited these claims. Next, appellants have forfeited their claim that trial court erred in allowing hearsay news reports. There's nothing in the record. Appellants have forfeited their claim the trial court erred in not compelling the defense to produce a certain witness. Nothing in the record. Appellates have uh, waived and forfeited their claim that the trial court erred in allowing the defense to play videotape excerpts. The trial court did not abuse its discretion in permitting evidence of drug use. Everything like this, one right after another, it's just yeah, a On every argument raised. And look, some of these might be viable arguments. It would have been great to see this shake out and, and uh, be argued properly. And and the court's not saying – the appellate court is not saying this evidence doesn't exist. They're just saying there is not a single citation to the record or legal authority to support these claims. 
Um, and a lot of these, look, they're familiar arguments, certain things being excluded that should have come in. We're familiar with these issues. And it's unfortunate because some of these could have uh, you know, really made their appellate record and they could have successfully had the decision on the motion for a new trial reconsidered. Um, so this is, again, a cautionary tale for when you're doing this. When you're doing an appeal, you need a good appellate record and you need citations to that record just for starters. Yeah, and, and I really think that's what the takeaway from this. I think the rest of the opinion isn't that significant. It's obviously very sad facts. But if you're going to be involved in an appeal, either get really experienced appellate counsel to help you or – if you're doing it yourself, know what you're doing with respect to the record because that, I think, is the ultimate cautionary tale of this particular case. Again, another unfortunate result for plaintiffs here. No kidding. All right, next unfortunate result. No, this one actually isn't an unfortunate result. What's the next one you got on our So list? this is the rogue juror case. This is Ruben Nodal versus Cal West Rain. Uh, Cal West Rain is a sprinkler company. Someone that's working on site at a vineyard gets injured because Cal West designed and installed some irrigation system where one of the caps at the end of some line was over-tightened. Um, and when the water was shut off, shut back on, or turned back on, uh, the cap blew off, and, and uh, this bushing, this two-inch plastic bushing, uh, blew, uh, hit this guy in the head, hit the plaintiff in the head. He was severely injured. Um, this you know, is a beautifully written opinion, by it the is. way. It's short, like you. It and is. You. Thanks. And you. We're not on you know, live TV, so no one can see how tall we are. I'm very tall. So yeah. there, He's and not, then. Just, just FYI. But it's really – it's not only is it a short opinion, it cuts right to the chase, but it's so well written, I just have to read the first couple lines. Is that all right? Oh, yeah. This is how it starts out. There's no other introduction. This is how it starts. It's nice. A rogue juror is someone who in mischievous way wanders apart from fellow jurors, does not follow the court's instructions, and violates the juror's oath. This undermines the integrity of trial by an impartial juror. Such a juror may not vote or influence other Jurors based upon asserted expertise on a matter not in evidence at trial. This is juror misconduct, which raises a presumption of prejudice. Here it is not rebutted, and we reverse. And that's exactly what happened here. Uh, this juror apparently uh, got up there when, when they're in deliberations, went to the other jurors and said, I know this type of system. I've been a pipe fitter for 35 years. I've set years. one of these up before, and that's not true. This isn't how it would work. On the first day of deliberations, gets in there and starts lecturing them, starts telling them. And then one way that you address juror misconduct with court is through juror affidavits. Yes. Which they produced. And then um, they made it very clear that the juror was going beyond just deliberating the evidence but was also bringing his own evidence in, extraneous evidence, uh, standard of care, his own theories, and was educating the jurors on what his opinion was. And the court says it's well settled that a juror shall not discuss an opinion explicitly based on speculation or information obtained outside the sources. This is this is sort of your example of a nightmare juror. I once had a case where a juror refused to deliberate and because he told the other jurors he didn't want to go back to work. So wow. the, the, the deliberations wow. went on for days until the judge finally declared a mistrial. And unfortunately, other jurors should be bringing this to the attention of the court, and they don't. Um, this thing went to verdict. It was an adverse verdict. Um, they brought up a motion after the trial to try to get it set aside. The judge denied it. and But the, fortunately, the Court of Appeal reversed. So um, 
great case when it comes to understanding what juror misconduct is. But, you know, judges also sit through a five-week trial, which is how long I think this trial was. Mm -hmm. And they're kind of reluctant to to do anything. They want to keep it. Yeah, it's a it's a high standard. Having recently had to oppose a JNOV in a new trial motion where there was allegations of juror misconduct, it's a very high threshold. Um, this meets it. You know, a crazy rogue juror like this, that meets it. But uh, typically, it's a high threshold. Uh, you have to create this presumption, and then it can be rebutted. And, you know, short of something like this, it's going to be hard to, to meet it. But if you ever have that situation, this is a good case to look at. Nodal versus Cal West from the second appellate division. All right, next case. Uh, next case is Jane Doe versus Department of Children and Family Services. Uh, this is a sad, sad case, sad results, sad facts. Um, uh, this individual who was in the foster care system through the Los Angeles County Department of Children and Family Services um, had been placed with a foster parent whose adult son, a 27-year-old adult son, uh, was... Uh, Having a just, sexual they, relationship these with just a seventeen-year-old. These are sad child. facts, top to bottom. Uh, apparently, the, the girl at the time of the, the event was seventeen. She had spent almost her entire life in foster care. She gets put with a foster care family, and the twenty-seven-year-old starts a rom- romantic relationship with her. Um, she and, becomes and pregnant break, with this child, which is called statutory rape, and it's against the, the law. And then the to make 20, it worse, twenty-two-year-old uh, son. Um, then just rapes, uh, rapes the seventeen-year-old right. girl. Rapes and her not just when the foster rape, mother was away. Just rapes rape, her. Right. yeah. And so. as soon as the Department of Children and Family Services find out about this, they remove the um, the girl from the home. Uh, I mean, I, the facts are so sad. And then there's a lawsuit against both um, the department as well as a private foster care agency for negligence and for failure to perform. The private entity, this private agency, something called Children's Institute, and the governmental entity, the DCFS. DCSF, yeah. And, and what are those? What are those distinctions? So uh, I think the, the the claims against the government entity are a lot tougher to bring because they have discretion in how they act. So you would have to show that they knew and their failure to do something is just so unreasonable and it wasn't within their discretion. It's kind of like how you have an abuse of discretion standard when you're, well, it's, you're reviewing a judge's conduct. Right, but it's also a mandatory duty that was focused on here. It was the mandatory duty to report. It was the mandatory duty – to um, do something about it if they knew. So there was a mandatory duty with respect to um, the DCSF, but the question becomes, what did they know? And that was unfortunately resolved against them because the court said that um, there was no evidence that they actually knew. In fact, if anything, uh, the plaintiff in the case concealed it, actively concealed it, and the contention was, had the employee of the DCSF actually come out and visited, she could have discovered that there was this uh, male adult at the residence. She could have discovered that there was a romantic interest. She could have discovered that there was something going on. They could have had um, a firm stance to discourage the relationship. And all of those things could have happened. Right. And the distinction here is not that they would have. If it was they would have known it, then it would be a different case. But they could have known if they looked into it a little bit more. Not they would have necessarily known. So, But let's turn our attention back to Children's Institute, the private entity, and the standard there negligence. W- was simply negligence. Negligence. And, and negligence what do we standard. need for negligence? Duty breach, 
causation and damages. Right. So there was clearly damages here, but that isn't the issue. Uh, the problem was, once ago, there was insufficient evidence to establish that they actually knew anything. And this is what happens when you have these third-party criminal conduct cases. You have to have something more than just the mere fact that it occurred. Right. And over here, it was the duty element that they couldn't meet. The Children's Institute, the private entity here that was contracted out, had no way or, or didn't know of the brothers, the kind of foster brothers um, that were – doing this abuse upon the uh, Jane Doe here that and because they didn't know about that they had no duty to protect against to protect against them well, there's no duty to pre- protect against unknown harms yeah and not to unfortunately beat a dead horse on a very sad case there was absolutely no evidence in the record from which the jury could confer that either of these entities either the public entity or the private entity had any knowledge, had any information, had any evidence whatsoever. So I can see the frustration in this case. It's an absolute horrible fact pattern. It's terrible. Um, I feel terrible for the girl because she obviously, now a young woman, went through, has gone through hell in her life, and this doesn't help it. And then to make it even matters worse, the trial court um, awarded attorney's fees because of a request for admission, and while I'm happy anytime there's um, a finding about a request for admission that's denied and that later becomes proven at trial, and that helps us, and the published portion of this case on that issue, there's good law on that, but I, I feel terrible because she was awarded attorney against attorney fees, there was a huge cost bill, and there's nothing. It's a sad outcome. It's, it's sad. not necessarily bad lawyering or anything like that. It's just a sad outcome. The only value or the, the value I see in this case is it's a good primer on these types of claims. Um, I'm, I personally wasn't intimately familiar with, with all the, the body of loss around these types of claims. But after reading this, I'm a lot more confident and uh, I kind of have a starting point at least. It's a good uh, primer on that. <laughs> So let's finish today on, on, on sort of an up note, which is this insurance case called Universal Cable Productions versus Atlantic Specialty Insurance Company. And um, the facts are very interesting. The issue's very interesting. Anyone who's ever bought an insurance policy has probably seen somewhere in their insurance policy that there is an act of war exclusion that says the policy doesn't cover an act of war. And I've done insurance cases for the better part of 30 years, and I've never had a case like this. But um, this case actually deals with that exclusion head-on. Right, and we, we do a lot of insurance cases, and when we come across the war exclusion part of every policy, we just kind of skip over because it's like, okay, well— Totally inapplicable, it's, right? It's not going to happen here. There's also like the nuclear explosion Well, let's, uh, hope, we're never, let's yeah. hope we're never dealing with a case that actually deals with that. But in this case, what happened is this was a some kind of a news agency— called Universal Cable Productions, and I guess they were producing a television show that was at the time being filmed or taped in Israel, and this was back in 2014 when the body of three missing teenagers, Israeli teenagers, were kidnapped by Hamas and were allegedly murdered, and then there was retribution potentially by the Israelis or by the Israeli civilians. And then and I think Hamas fired rockets from Gaza into Israel. So Universal said, we're leaving. Well, the State Department then issues a warning oh, yeah, and yeah. says you shouldn't travel because we're concerned about the safety and security. And then Universal leaves and makes an insurance claim of their policy saying they had to leave. They had to wrap this production because of that. And the carrier in this case denied coverage. 
based upon the act of war exclusion, which turns out to actually be three separate exclusions. And the court looked at this and considered the exclusions and determined that the first two exclusions, which are what the district court based its ruling throwing the case out and saying there's no, there's no coverage, saying that there was an act of war, uh, that's what they based it on was these first two exclusions. And um, the Ninth Circuit looked at this and reversed on both of those and remanded for reconsideration on the third ground, which we'll talk about shortly. Okay, so the three exclusions in this war uh, umbrella are, one is war, including undeclared or civil war. What so is that, it good for? Right. Absolutely nothing. nothing. That's yep. right. That's right. Very clever. Um, two is warlike action by a military force, including action in hindering or defending against an actual or expected attack by any government, sovereign, or authority using military personnel or other agents. And what's the third? And the third one is insurrection, rebellion, revolution, usurp power, action taken by the governmental authority in hindering or defending against any of these. So let's kind of do this backwards. Let's first start with the fact that the court, the Ninth Circuit came to the conclusion that the district court never reached that third exclusion. That third exclusion is, again, Um, insurrection, rebellion, revolution. That's what we'll call it. So that's an open question. Is this an insurrection, rebellion, or revolution? They didn't address that. Yeah, I don't think it was from the fact pattern here. I think it's pretty weak. It's pretty thin, but they sent it back to the district court for reconsideration on solely that issue because on the other two, they basically reached the same finding, right? Yeah, the other two are war and warlike action by a military force. Now, why, why is that significant here? Because the the conflict that was occurring or the warlike action that was occurring was on the part of Hamas, which is not a sovereign. And ultimately, that's what it came down to. The, oh. the Ninth Circuit said that you have to be a sovereign in order to qualify for the actions of that entity or you know, organization to right. qualify as war or warlike action. So here's where we come to the part of the, of the discussion of the case that I think is relevant, which is beyond just insurance and the chance of any of us actually confronting the war exclusion <laughs> in our yeah. practice are pretty thin, hopefully. Yeah. Uh, the, the issue here was what do you look at to determine the usage of language in, a, in an insurance policy. And beyond insurance policy, the Ninth Circuit looked at California Civil Code Section 1644, which says that under normal circumstances, terms in contracts, including insurance policies, are understand in their un- ordinary and popular sense rather than according to strict legal meaning. However, there is an exception to that, and that's if there is a special meaning given to them by usage. So industry custom and practice, for example, right. right? So you look at the customary definition of it, not necessarily the plain meaning. Right. So and when, here in the insurance world, they said, well, there is a custom and in, in, in practice in how you look at this specific type of language. And here, the custom- this example here is war is defined as they cite to, I think, some sort of treatise on insurance. And they say in the insurance world, war is defined as the employment of force between governments or entities essentially like governments, at least de facto. Right. So the normal, ordinary understanding of war might be much broader than the insurance industry understanding. And the insurance industry understanding of war is actually, as you said, hostility between states or state-like entities. 
and that means some kind of a sovereign that's engaged in a warlike action against another sovereign. And then the Ninth Circuit makes the following determination that Hamas is neither a de jure nor de facto sovereign. So I'm sure the nice people at Hamas are very upset about that yeah, specifically. Yeah, the, the Ninth Circuit didn't earn a new fan when they came down with this new new ruling. But um, in, in I fact, think that's the right said, outcome. I mean, right. if, if, if anyone cares what our opinion is, that's probably an accurate outcome. But right. No I'm not willing opinions. to recognize Hamas as a sovereign. Good. And apparently neither is the United States, the EU, Canada, Australia, and multiple other countries, probably including the countries you came from, Sean. That's true. I was actually born here, though. Sure. So that kind of wraps it up for today. We thought that that last case was interesting, um, but the application of how to interpret a contract is important. It's always remember. That, that's the important important. element from this, because when you're dealing with insurance, com- insurance contracts, you're going to have a lot of sometimes ambiguities, fights over the meaning of words. This is a good case, universal cable production to read, to give you a primer on options for how to interpret it in the law governing that. Hey, thanks everybody for tuning in today and listening. We appreciate it. We hope that this is of some interest to you and we hope that you got something out of this um, valuable. We always do. And obviously what's important to us is your feedback. We'd like to know what you'd like to hear about. Uh, we don't just talk about cases. We've got some episodes coming up in the future about other topics. But Sean, tell them how they can get a hold of us. You can find us at kbklawyers.com or on all social media platforms at Cabotec LLP. If you have any ideas for things you'd like for us to cover or if you have any complaints about Brian and his jokes and his analysis, you know, we'd love to hear that too. Not really. No, we, we, we'd like to hear Not that. Not really. No one wants to hear that except you, Sean. Yeah, well, we got to do some quality control here and, and hear what people really think about. Right, and if there's anything you'd like us to cover in the future, or importantly, if there's anything we can help you with in your cases, you want to bounce ideas off us, feel free to reach out to us. Thank you, and hope you tune in next time.